Blog Talk Radio. Fisher, your host, and it's my great pleasure to welcome tonight a very special guest, Senate Attorney Jane Muir. She's a partner in the Miami law firm of Gersten and Muir. And uh, hello, Jane. Hi, Robert. How are you? Uh, I'm doing excellent. How are you tonight? I'm just fantastic. Awesome. I was just introducing you and just informed the audience that you're a partner in the Miami law firm of Gersten and Muir. And uh, I'm very pleased to have you on tonight. And I'm hoping that uh, this conversation that we're going to have might dispel a lot of um, a lot of um, bad ideas that people have about attorneys today in our society. And, well, I sure um, hope so. Me as well. Um to begin with, let's talk a little bit about your background. I know you're a Miami native, isn't that correct? Yes, it is. And uh, well, you... go ahead. Sorry, yes, I was I was born in Miami, and so was my father, which is unusual. A, a lot of people moved to Miami, like my grandparents did uh, in the 20s when it was the magic city. Um, my my grandmother was a, a writer for the Miami News, and my grandfather was a real estate attorney, and they just liked it so much that they stayed, and my family has been here ever since. That's terrific. So you really have uh, fairly strong roots in the community. I do, I do, and I'm quite proud of it. You know, it's it's such an amazing city. It it really is the magic city, and and I'm proud of this town. Even though there have been occasions when the the cities had had trouble in politics and and with crime here and there, uh, but it is an amazing city filled with opportunity for anyone who is ready to work hard and and earn a, a good reputation. Well, I, I totally agree with you, and, um, you know, I got a very interesting surprise when uh, I was flying back from uh, Miami to New York recently. I was perusing uh, the bookstore they had at the airport, and Tom Wolfe, the famous writer, has just written a novel about Miami, which recently came out, and he called it the most creative American city and the city of the future. Uh, well, I sure but- agree with that. Mhm. Mhm. And you know, he particularly was referring to the fusion of different cultures and you know, all the interesting people that pass through Miami and some of which, you know, uh some of which stay and um, you know, and and put down roots as well, but it certainly does draw an interesting cross-section of people these days. That's for sure. Yes. And the truth is it always has. Um, you know, my grandmother 
the writer, she she wrote one of the first works of history on the the history of Miami. And it really has always been a place where different cultures come together in a unique and interesting way. Even before the city was incorporated, it was a town where Bahamian settlers and New England boat builders and fishermen uh, lived together harmoniously long before desegregation. Uh, you know, Miami is the first town to have black suffrage because... Really? Yes. As a matter of fact, in 1896, when the city was being incorporated, there weren't enough white male voters to incorporate, and at the time you needed 100. So black men were invited to participate in the voting to incorporate the city of Miami. And even later on, we had uh, new people coming from from Georgia uh, to build the railroads and business people from the Midwest. Uh, all all different types of people have, have been coming to Miami and, and joining forces to build this town out of out of what was previously swamp and, and pine scrub and uh, kind of empty land. Right. Well, it's certainly not that now. <laughs> yes, it really is a boom town and and we've we've had recent uh recent construction that has been quite impressive. Uh, the skyline has just changed so much in the last 10 years. It's it's been amazing to watch. I I have I have seen that not in the last 10 years in particular but certainly in the last 5 or 6 years uh as I've spent a lot of time there and um there's another construction boom that is going on now you know I was gone for about 6 weeks before I came back to Miami and it's almost as if I didn't recognize the city there are construction cranes everywhere Yes it's it's amazing you know when my grandfather moved down it was when Miami Beach was being developed and Miami Beach was nothing but a sandbar, not even a real island, just just a little bit of a sandbar. And they dredged up sand from the bottom of the ocean and created out of nothing this beautiful island that is now Miami Beach. Um, but the, the difficulty that the town has had over time has been the booms are, are frequently followed by lean times hard hard periods of of recession so i see i think part of the reason why they call it the magic city is is that just when you think that the town is out of juice it just miraculously booms again mhm so you feel we're at the beginning of a new boom period absolutely and and yeah. i was predicting that 2015 would be the time when you would start to see major construction happening again because our last boom ended in about 2001 or two. I see. Well, you know, it's, that's all very interesting, and that's a really nice backdrop uh, backdrop to to uh, discuss um, your um, your role as an attorney and then forming the uh, the law firm of Gerson and Muir. Um, what motivated you to form your own law firm? Well, 
basically what happened was I came out of law school at a time when it was uh, uh, one of those troughs, when there were a lot of lawyers coming out of school and not a lot of jobs. And I had many different options myself for for jobs, um, but the the option that I ended up pursuing didn't didn't end up working out for me. And so I I went and met with different friends of mine who were successful attorneys and and asked for their advice on what I should do. And one of them, a guy who is a darling, wonderful, nice person, as well as an excellent attorney in the field of medical malpractice, was uh, Tom Gamba. And, and Tom Gamba and I had lunch, and he and I said, well, Tom, you know, what do you think I should do? And he said, you know, Jane, you should just start your own practice. You should just do it. And and you have the ambition and the drive and the energy and and you can do it. I did it. I, I started my practice sharing office space with other lawyers, and I just started trying any case that I got my hands on. And the next thing I knew, I had 15 or 20 trials under my belt, and, and people were coming to me. And I know that, that that would happen to you too. And the truth is that that, that vote of confidence was enough to to give me the the energy to and the focus to go ahead and, and start my firm. So I initially started with my trial partner from law school, who is a dear friend of mine and, and an excellent, excellent criminal attorney, Alan Greenberg. Um, but Alan ended up getting a job offer from the public defender's office in Broward County, where he lived. And so uh, I started a new partnership with Adam Gerson, who's another Miami native, uh, whose family's been here quite a long time, and his father is a, a retired judge who was on the Third District Court of Appeals for the state of Florida uh, for many, many years. And Adam and I, we got together because we thought we could do something that was different and better than what we saw happening in the legal profession. Well, what are some of the things that were troubling to you uh, in the traditional practice of law that you saw that you wanted to avoid and perhaps change? Well, there there are two things about the traditional law firm structure that that I noticed that that were cause for concern. But for one thing, the the lawyer business is a a kind of atypical business because due to the standards of professional ethics for lawyers, you're only allowed to have lawyer investors, lawyer shareholders, lawyer uh, stakeholders, whatever you want to refer to these um, shareholders as, they have to all be lawyers. And the, the rationale for this is that a lawyer owes a, a fiduciary duty, a duty of the utmost care to his client. Mm -hmm. And by contrast, a, a company that has shareholders that's not a law firm owes a fiduciary duty of utmost care to its shareholders to maximize profit. 
So there, this situation creates a potential conflict of interest where a lawyer understands that their primary duty is to the client, but a non-lawyer participant in a corporation would know only the fiduciary duty to the shareholders. So the the reason for why you have only lawyers allowed to to be involved in in law firms is because the idea is that lawyers know that they need to, number one, protect their clients' interests and their own pecuniary interests come second. So I think that's actually an incredibly favorable thing. Um, That being said, the way the traditional law firm structure works is kind of like a pyramid where you'll find... One lawyer is at the top of the pyramid with a very well-developed book of business and many relationships with with clients who are quite confident in that lawyer's ability to resolve their problems. And so that lawyer's work and clients is leveraged by having subordinate attorneys who don't interact with the client but provide support to the top lawyer in the form of legal work. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you'll hear this relationship referred to as, as the, the finders and grinders relationship. Finders and grinders. Finders and grinders, right. The finders find the business and the grinders grind out the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'll hear sometimes people refer to minders as the ones who are really doing the management, the minding the shop. Um, well, right. It seems to me that, that this, situation creates a a difficult relationship between the grinders and the finders and the minders because the the finders think that if not for their obtaining these clients and keeping them happy, then none of the grinders would have work to do. And so typically the rainmaker's uh, income is the highest by comparison to the grinders and the minders. And this breeds resentment in the firm because the grinders think, well, if it weren't for my hard work, then this rainmaker could never uh, be able to support these clients and do what the clients need to be done. And likewise, the people who are supervising the, the firm and who are managing and doing all of the minding the shop uh, they feel like, well, the grinders couldn't do what they do and the, the the finders couldn't do what they do but for me. But the premium is has usually been placed on the, the finding. So with my firm, I wanted to make sure that there were incentives built into our structure for all three of these activities. My goal that's being, quite that's quite a um uh, a different approach than the, than the traditional law firm. Yes, yes. And and my goal with doing this this different approach is to create a kind of symbiotic relationship among the finders, grinders and minders where they understand that they have to work together as a team in a in a relationship that supports one another, that doesn't neglect any one category of worker in the environment. 
Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And and what was it like for you to actually implement this change? What steps did you take? And what were some surprises and what were some things that went according to what your expectations might have been? Well, it, the truth is that it's an ongoing experiment and the the scholarship right now in in business management uh, has a lot to do with agility and adaptation to changing circumstances. So one of the things that, that we did was we created a, a base salary where everybody, regardless of level of partner or associate or or anything, was entitled to a certain basic uh, package as, as compensation. Then, over and above that basic base salary, which is which is quite low, we created incentives so that the people who are making the work happen and getting it out the door will earn a portion of a, a share of profits because they're getting the work out the door, and likewise the rainmakers earn a portion of profits based on their origination credit. So origination is what I call obtaining clients, building relationships with clients, um, inspiring clients to have confidence in the quality of our work and in the quality of our advocacy and in the services that we provide and how uh, how personalized they, they are. So, and then finally, there's the, the management credit, um, which we which we do as another you know percentage portion of the profit. Um, and this has been a kind of work in progress. One of the challenges has been assigning a, a precise percentage to this. And and some good advice I got from a local attorney, John Kozak, who's quite well known for his good work in the community and. Uh, in particular, the minority mentorship picnic that he founded. Um, he said he he once told me that when you calculate bonuses, you should use a dull pencil. That's the way he put it. But what does you he don't mean by wanna, that? Right. Well, you don't want to be nitpicking and and being extra precise about the way you calculate everybody's contribution, whatever they may be, finding, grinding, or minding, that it's important to to be generous with your colleagues because one year you may have an exceptionally good year, but if you're greedy and you, you take too much that year, then the next year you have a, a, a more bare year, the colleagues are liable to have built-up resentment and and you know, not be as generous with you later on. Right. Now, in practice, uh, how how long have you been implementing this system? How long have you been experimenting with this? Uh, it's been two and a half years. Cause two and a half Alan years. Alan and I and Adam and I all have, have been using this kind of um, incentive system. And what's been the reaction of some of the people on your team to it? 
Well, we have a very friendly relationship. It it is truly a team of equals, and I I'm very pleased with everybody's work, and I think they're pleased with the way the firm is. You know, aside from compensation, I mean, compensation is the thing that most managers think about most, but mm-hmm. there's there's more to it than that. It's it's about recognizing strengths and using people's strengths towards what they enjoy and and permitting them to blossom in the direction that they would like to be going. And, for example, Lincoln, our our associate, um, and I I don't like to use those hierarchical kind of terms. Lincoln, our colleague, he loves going to court more than anything. He loves going to court, and he's exceptionally talented about it. And so right. he makes sure that as much as he can, he, he gets to go to court. So that's an and example non- of using people's strengths. Exactly, exactly. And and another example, you know, Lana is, is incredibly talented at execution. She's just a really meticulous drafter. And she's aside from that, she's um, very talented at, at marketing and social media. So she's in charge of our marketing decisions. She pretty right. much calls the shot when it comes to what we decide to, to do online. Right. I think that's uh, I think that's really very astute of you to play to people's strengths. And you know, so often in an organization, people are expected to do a lot of different things that don't necessarily fit their nature or their interests. And I think the organization suffers as a result of that. Yes. Yes. Well, and oh, sorry. No, go go ahead. I was going to say, um, you know, aside from the actual structure and and how we work as a team, I've noticed and and read about and and studied the the existence of a kind of conflict of interest between clients and their attorneys, and that's another thing we try to confront and, and correct. Now, how do you approach that? Well, for example, a lot of times you'll find that lawyers charge for their services on an hourly basis. And this can become a problem because for the lawyer to maximize his income, he has to work a lot of hours. And the client wants the matter resolved quickly for the most part. So it's just the same as if you hired me to paint your fence and you paid me by the hour, then it might take me a week to pay, paint your fence. But if you hired me to paint your fence and you paid me 800 bucks to paint the fence, I'd be done in a day. And and so the goal with our with our interactions with our clients is to create a, a, a kind of arrangement, a, a compensation arrangement, where the clients are able to expect excellent work because we're earning what we deserve, but we also are incentivized to complete the task quickly. And we do this with hybrid arrangements. For example, we'll we'll charge a low hourly rate and a, a success fee, or we will combine flat rate with 
bonuses. And and this is another work in progress uh, because we often will give our clients multiple choices as to how they would like to structure our compensation. The most curious thing about that has been a lot of clients have still chosen to go with the traditional compensation structure. Why do you think that is? For the most part, I think it's because they're inexperienced with working with lawyers. I work with a lot of startups, and most of them find that it isn't until they're really going that they need an attorney or they feel like they need an attorney. So we wind up doing a lot of uh, cleaning up of uh, structural legal things that that were put in place without real clear plans or, or thinking. Um, and, and they just haven't worked through a litigation with a, with a lawyer before, and they think, oh, it'll be easier hourly because they think that the, the matter will resolve quickly. Um, but once we go through an experience in, in litigation or, or drafting a contract or you know, negotiating an agreement or something, oftentimes they'll understand better what it is that, that we're offering and the, the real value of what we offer in our alternative fee arrangement. And have any of them um, changed the uh, compensation plan in the middle of an action or a project? You know what? So far not, and we choose to do that because we believe in uh, having a very clear picture of what it is our responsibility to do. So whenever we sign a client, we start out with a contract that is very clear that defines exactly what our responsibilities are and how we intend to communicate with the client, how frequently, how how long we expect the matter to take, what we expect the potential results will be in in as clear terms as we possibly can. And then we make sure to update the clients quite regularly, at least monthly, which is unusual. A lot of times lawyers will not um, communicate as frequently with their clients. And the ethical rules only require quarterly letters um, to the to the client. Uh, but we don't believe that it's wise to change course midstream because we're f- afraid that it might cause confusion as to what the responsibilities are on both sides of the, of the arrangement right. with the client. And, and I think that makes sense. And as some of these companies gain a little more experience in the litigation process and in the length of time that things take, perhaps there will be a greater percentage of your business that will opt for the for not going with the traditional hourly rate. Well, I hope so. And the truth is that even if they do go with the traditional hourly rate, uh, I'm I'm proud to say that most of our clients have been quite pleased with our services, even on an hourly basis, because we do go above and beyond what we bill for, and, and we really do make an effort to to build a, a level of trust with our clients that oftentimes you won't see lawyers being given. 
Right. Uh, I can't believe the time is flying. We have about a minute and a half left, Jane. Is there anything in particular you want to convey to the audience? I mean, we, we could probably have you on for at least another hour and, and not even scratch the surface of what we want to talk about. Anything come to mind that you want to express? Well, you know, I, I'm just so honored to be on the show, and and I know that, that some people have negative impressions of the legal profession but i just want to want to share that there are really strong people of good character who are in the legal profession and in south florida i'm proud to say that we have a a joint resolution on civility that that 35 voluntary bar associations have approved and i'm i'm very proud of the legal community in south florida and i think that that anyone who needs assistance from a lawyer in Miami is is lucky to be here because it's a it's a wonderful place to be practicing. Jane, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on Monergy Life. This is Robert Fisher. Jane Muir was my guest partner in the Miami law firm of Gerson and Muir. Jane, good evening. Good evening to all our um, listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Robert. Good night. Good night.